0: What's up, Gumbo listeners? Demetrius Malbro here bringing you another Data Protection Gumbo episode for you. And today I have the pleasure of speaking with Diana Kelly, CTO and founding partner at Security Curve. Now, Diana has been in the industry for over 30 years. She fell in love with tech by exploring the DARPA net in the late 70s. Yes, I did say DARPA net. Before the internet now she enjoys giving back through volunteering and mentoring and lives on the east coast in new hampshire with her spouse two hyperactive dogs and two barely active cats that's funny so gumbo listeners diana drops some serious knowledge around ransomware zero trust architecture and provides some tips on storing and protecting data in the cloud so Let's get right into the episode. Welcome to Data Protection Gumbo, Diana. How are you today?
1: I'm doing well, Demetrius. How are you?
0: I am fantastic and excited to have a security type conversation with you today. Can you tell us a little bit about Security Curve and also why, why you founded the company and what types of issues are you trying to address?
1: Yeah, so we're a small uh, security consulting company. That was founded 17 years ago, although I haven't been doing it full-time contiguously, so throughout there I've done things like I was the cybersecurity field CTO for Microsoft for a number of years, I was the global executive security advisor for IBM security. but. My real love is actually doing the work that I do at Security Curve because it can be very focused to the customers instead of having to try to have a solution that's going to fit for everybody. Security Curve is a small company, but we can work with very large customers on very custom solutions. And over the years, what we do and provide has changed as what the market needs have changed. And currently, what's of most interest to our customers is high-level executive advisement so speaking with the CIO, the CTO, the CSO, and the CISO about their strategies and providing long-term ongoing guidance and also uh, working on assessments, working with companies about their security posture and helping them understand where maybe some of their, their they could be shored up and improved.
0: Okay. Okay. So, so you have a lot of conversations with with IT executives, like uh, chief information security officers and CIOs. I, I guess a question I would like to know, as well, since I'm not privy to to have a seat at the table at the moment, what what are some of the conversations that that you are having? With, let's say, a, a CISO in, in 2021, where, where is the conversation going? I know it's security-focused, but what specifically would would you have a conversation with them about?
1: Yeah, and it, it's going to depend a lot on the maturity of that company, the size, the sector that they're in. But there are some kind of overarching themes. One is having gone to fully remote work, and a lot of organizations are almost fully remote work, um, in 2020 because of the pandemic, taking a look at the architectures and the approaches that the companies had in place and what's going to, you know, what needs to stay and what may be reassessed after the pandemic hopefully is contained. So things like um, uh, just a really simple one is VPN architectures. So many companies had had VPNs, but they were set up for um mobile work, not remote work. And what I mean by that is that the mobile workforce is you you probably have this set number of people. They're very often you're very mobile people, your sales force, and you expect them to come into a headquarters or a building regularly. Well, with the pandemic and fully remote work, there's no opportunity for those people to go on site. And suddenly, it's not just the sales team, it's everybody in the organization. So an old, a VPN model of sending everybody's traffic back through to the corporate headquarters where there's a VPN server and then sending all that traffic back out into the cloud just didn't make sense as suddenly everybody was remote. So companies are looking to more modern VPN architectures where you find that point of presence within the cloud itself. So it's those kinds of things that they're looking at how digital transformation accelerated and how the security aspects have to accelerate with that. So that's a big one. So another big aspect is that budgets have gotten very constrained because there's a lot of uncertainty about how the pandemic is going to impact different sectors and organizations long term. So security, which is always kind of the the group that's asking for more money than they can get pretty often. This is now exacerbated in 2021 with the, the budgets, and so the, the teams are being asked to do, as usual, do more with less, but it's you know fewer resources and resources that have had to get um, reappropriated in order to respond to some of the, um, the work and the needs of the organization. So that's, that's another big one is, is how do we continue to do more with less in security going forward? And then I would say the last one is sort of connected to both of those, which is that the the rise of wanting to look at zero trust architectures for security instead. And that's again, it's kind of more modern. It fits into this very cloud based approach, and organizations are trying to get a handle around how what does this look like. So CIOs and CTOs and CISOs working together to figure out what that's going to look like throughout their their organizations.
0: Okay, so zero trust. That's it's not a term. I guess we hear often in the backup and recovery and data protection industry, I I have an idea what it is that you're you're not trusting anybody to access your systems. And you're probably implementing things like multi-factor authentication. And who knows? I guess, you know, all the different types of things that you can implement to keep people out of your systems and how to track them and how to make sure only people have access to the things that they need to have access to and nothing more. What is Zero Trust?
1: No, <laughs> you're spot on. That's really, that's the, the crux of it. It's First of all, it's not a product, which uh, is a, a good thing to remind people because there are some companies that go out and essentially say, we have one, one, you know, push one button and Zero Trust is everywhere. It's an architectural strategy and approach. So it's a number of different products and a number of different solutions can get the company to what is zero trust for them. But the core tenant of zero trust is to move past our old thinking of as soon as you've authenticated into a network or a system or a device, you're totally trusted. Way, way back in the day, we used to call it the Malomar approach to security. Because the hardware and the edge, you know, on the edge of the firewalls was nice and crunchy to keep people out. But once you were inside, it was soft and gooey because you were completely trusted. And now we're saying there is no complete trust. Just because you've gotten into the network, that doesn't mean that I'm going to trust that you can get to this database and to this mail server and to this backup server, for example. I'm going to have to. I'm going to authenticate or re-verify you consistently throughout the process. That doesn't mean the reason that you also you often hear it referred to as, as verified and not authenticated. It doesn't mean that people are going to have to enter in passwords every 30 seconds because none of us would, could be able to get any work done. But it does mean that there are assessments of monitoring throughout all the access within that system, whether it's cross cloud, hybrid cloud, all of the access points um, you reassess on each request. And if it's a very high sensitivity request, so for example, if you're going into the database, which is very, or a database, which very often has crown jewels for a company, then you might be uh, looked at for extra authentication, step-up authentication. Uh, You may just be monitored more closely. The the velocity of data that you can pull off that database may be monitored. There are a lot of ways to monitor and limit the access without making it feel like it's very, very uh, intrusive for the user. But the core of it is that it's no longer you've authenticated to the corporate network. You have access to everything. You're fully trusted. It's this continuous verification. Okay,
0: great. And so also so you mentioned having access to a backup server. And, you know, one thing that's mentioned often in the news is is ransomware and even the bad actors or bad guys, they've started targeting backup systems because they know That's where the um, secondary data exists in case a recovery is needed quickly. And uh, they've they've gotten very smart over the over the years. And what are you seeing, I guess, from a ransomware point of view? Are you seeing more? Ransomware cases or issues that that you are called into consult on.
1: Yeah, there has been an absolute rise in ransomware. You know, last year ransomware ticked up, and it depends on which report you're reading. You know, I've seen you know all the way from like you know a hundred percent increase to thousand percent increases. It's, you know, it depends on who's doing the reporting and the research, but the bottom line is that companies are are dealing with this very frequently. It is the the frequency of it is absolutely on the rise for organizations and the attackers are getting really clever with their their phishing emails and they pivot those lures pretty quickly and the lure is what's going to get you to click you're we're all human beings we all respond in in fairly similar ways there's a it's it's evolutionary you know it's the click were which is a a concept that was um first introduced by uh, Robert Cialdini, who is a professor of psychology, and he wrote the book on influence. And it's it's a fantastic piece. Although it's about marketing, it's really good for those people in security or in technology to take a look at because it helps to understand why people do things. And when you understand that and then you look at what the fishers are doing, they sure understand why people do things. And we we use this clickware response, which is in order for us to get through our day, We have to kind of just make these sort of like leaps of faith in our brains, you know, just like if you've ever been driving and you go on autopilot, that's your own click work coming in because, you know, this is how you drive to work every day or maybe you used to and now it's where we're going to the grocery store. Um, But we use these little mental shortcuts that keep us going much more effectively and, and give us the, the ability in our brains to think about other more interesting things. But when click were takes place, when we get something like a, a, a phishing lure, for example, a phishing email with a really interesting lure in it to get us to click, to chomp on it, then our click were works against us. And some of the, the dimensions of that would be things like time, we are, we are very hardwired as human beings that when time is running out, we want to respond. You know, there's this whole concept of scarcity. You know, it's like, and you see it, it it's in our lives all around us. Every time you see a, a shopping channel, it says, We only have four of these left. Shop now, right? Come on. Most of the time, they're more in the warehouse. It's just they have more for that segment. They don't have many more for that segment. But that, that gets our, our click war on I need to respond now. And you see this in the emails that come in. Because it's not just, oh, this really super cute cat. It's a very well-crafted, this invoice is overdue and it needs to be paid now. And it may appear to come from the CEO. And that's another aspect of that clickwor, which is that um when we have authority coming to us in, in an email, we respond very differently. There's just we just have this very visceral reaction of, oh, the CEO says I have to do this now, and boom, we're going into being very effective and efficient and saying, I need to respond to this. Let me see what that attachment is. So that's what the attackers are. That's how they've, they've changed a lot of what they're doing is that they, they looked at the they've pivoted the lures to make them more attractive. And last year they were very much around things related to the pandemic, whether it was how to get your stimulus check if you live in the United States, to information on here's where you can get the vaccine or you know early on a lot of it was just about what is this thing and you know what's the fatality rate and things that we were just so anxious about so yeah they they're they're very they're getting very sophisticated and they know how to play on our our reaction yeah
0: and diana it seems like the healthcare industry is is hit rather hard because you know i have my own thoughts about that because i've worked in the healthcare industry quite a bit, supporting uh, some large backup systems, you know, within uh, healthcare organizations. And I know I see some antiquated systems and they're not always patched uh, at the highest level and they may not be running the latest and greatest, you know, code of that particular software, or they may even have their own proprietary um, software that was written to do something special, you know, within their environment. Uh, why do you think, I guess, healthcare sector is, is like one of the highest targeted areas, I guess, from a ransomware perspective?
1: Yeah, well, you know, of the, the list that you gave, which was really so spot on, the other component is that if it's an FDA-approved medical device, it may be approved against a very specific version of the operating system. So if the operating system provider, say Microsoft, is updating that version of Windows, the health system may not be able to update to patch Windows because that could lead to the, the the medical device running on top of it no longer being certified as a medical device. So that is some tricky tricky stuff for, you know, which you really, you start to feel for, anytime you work with companies, and I'm sure you feel this too, you, you know, when you read some of these headlines that are like, basically, why are companies so dumb? Why won't they just like take the, you know, you know that the reality on the ground is, it's a very complicated kind of set of interdependent, interdependencies in, in large networks. But so at, looking last year at what was going on with a lot of the ransomware attacks, it, it, why healthcare? in part because attackers have been getting into organizations for a long time and instead of just launching an attack when they get in very often they just quietly sit there and look at the at look at the activity look at a good time basically to attack this is actually one of my concerns with the solar winds breach is that i think that there may be if for companies that don't do a complete rebuild of their networks and servers. I think there may be persistence from these these threat actors within networks as they quietly observe and, and perform reconnaissance. But last year, um, some of these human-operated ransomware gangs that had been quietly observing on healthcare systems saw the healthcare systems become to get overloaded, and ransomware the entire purpose of ransom well the purpose of ransomware is to get somebody paid but how, how do they accomplish it they accomplish it by interrupting business operations which in a health system at any time is not ideal I mean very often right now because of how um, electronic we have gone within the health system that could mean anything from MRI machines not working to not being able to process patients into the into the hospital or into the system because the the normal systems are down and as the as the health systems were coming overloaded with people coming in being sick you know we saw you know tremendous overload early on in Italy and in parts of New York state as that was happening their ability to their tolerance for business interruption went way down i mean it was it's already very low in a health environment, but it went even farther down than that because of this just influx of patients needing care. So if you've got business operations interrupted and the answer is pay somebody some Bitcoin and maybe save lives, then they're going to be much more likely to do that. It's heartbreaking because there's been really good research that shows that paying the ransomware is ultimately a much more expensive proposition than being able to recover. But a lot of these health systems, that they felt that was the only option that they had. And so attackers saw that there was, they took the opportunity. It's, it's kind of sickening to think about it, but um, they, they saw that there was an opportunity and they took it.
0: Yeah. And I remember reading an article that said a patient actually died after a ransomware attack because I think they launched an attack and it diverted the ambulance to the wrong hospital or something to that effect in Germany. Yeah,
1: there have been a couple of, there was one after WannaCry with the NHS where a surgery wasn't able to go on. There have been some other reports of yeah, things like people being diverted, um, not being processed quickly enough. So these are, I mean, it's it's a little hard to say ransomware entirely caused them, but certainly disruption within the, the IT systems leads to not great outcomes sometimes so yeah i mean it it, i think what's really important here is that healthcare just like any system that's what you know when you look at critical infrastructure when we've got things like you know gps and and um our you know satellite communication and the electric grid that anything that technically can interrupt those can interrupt the the um the appropriate and normal function of those systems can now, because of the space that they're in, potentially lead to impact that can go from, you know, harm to even, you know, potentially loss of life.
0: Yeah. And you, you also mentioned cryptocurrency. This, I guess that's the primary method of the way they, you know, transact business for those that actually pay the ransom. And I was reading the other day, Um, That they estimated that about $10 billion worth of crypto transfers occurred in 2020 that were criminal related. You know, the first thing that comes to mind is, I guess, how do they know that? Right. You know, how are they tracking that? If, If they know how much has been transacted, then why aren't they able to catch those individuals? You know, it's just how I think.
1: Yeah, I mean that that's one of the things about cryptocurrency is it does create a level of an anonymity. And even when you see some of these criminals using the, the standard financial services infrastructure, they're very, very fast about breaking money up. I remember back when I was at IBM, we, we were researching and, and following one campaign where a million dollars was transferred from a valid bank account to another valid bank account. Of course, it was a criminal bank account, but they had set it up and it was valid. It was within the, the regular U.S. banking system. And from there, it got split up into 50 other accounts within seconds. And started to move outside of the United States, and from there it split up to more accounts, and, and then it starts to become very hard to track where it's going. But they so they can move it and, and break it down very quickly, and then ultimately, in some cases, you get mules, humans at the other end. that Here, you want to make fifty bucks really quickly? Go to this ATM with this card, take out this money, and mail it to this other place. Um, you know, so there's there's also there, you know, there. They get very good at being able to move the money even when it goes through standard financial services. And, of course, looking at something like cryptocurrency, that gives them, a, you know, that's that's preferred because it gives them anonymity.
0: Okay. And so keeping on with, I guess, ransomware, what, what do you recommend that the Gumbo listeners do maybe before or after? Well, not not after, but before a ransomware attack happens in order to, I guess, decrease their chances of actually getting hit with ransomware? Is there anything they, they can do?
1: Well, I hope the Gumbo listeners are already doing this because I suppose you have a very strong backup and data protection listenership, but backups are actually, it, this is, this is your first, it's the gold standard. It's the number one way to help Uh, help you be able to respond very quickly in case of a ransomware attack. Because if a system is ransomed, rather than having to pay to get the data back, if you have a backup available, then that's ideal. And for some companies, having a backup, even a week-old backup, to restore that week of work is actually not as as much you, as much as you, you might think. Um, in some in some industries and sectors, having to restore 10 seconds of work, financial services is a great example. Actually, can cost quite a lot of money. So you need to set up. But smaller businesses, one week. It may be very possible, so set up a, a backup program starting with the three two one rule, which is have at least three versions of the backup on two different kind of media. So one media could be one one copies in the cloud, and one copy is to a, a storage like a network attached storage on prem with the the organization and then one of those make sure is cold or not accessible online because as you pointed out Demetrius attackers have figured out if the network is attacked you know if i can if i can get into another part of the network where the backups are then of course eliminating the backups destroying the backups or otherwise rendering them worthless is something that the attackers want to do so to have that extra bit of absolute um, safety that, you know, the attacker's not going to get to that backup, have at least one of those cold. And then, as I had mentioned, for smaller companies, that can be just doing a once a week backup, keeping it, you know, offline. And then that's, you, I, ideally, you don't want to have to do that for restore. Um, when you get to larger, more complex multinational companies, governments, they have high availability and rapid failover for being able to go offline with those backups so that they can be, you know, in sync within a, a
0: few seconds. Right. Yep. That is exactly spot on there. And also, I guess, do you have any interesting stories of maybe customers, clients or anything you've heard out in the field of someone successfully recovering from ransomware that you can share? Not, not sure if you can or not.
1: Well, I can't name names, but yes. I mean, so very, strong responses to ransomware when companies had a very robust and very, you know, functional backup system and being able to, and just going back and wipe, go back to the, basically the the ones that succeed are the ones that are able to wipe everything down and start from scratch. Ask yourself if you would have trouble taking any system that, and that would go for servers, for your cloud workloads, for your desktops, for your mobile devices. If you don't feel comfortable with being able to wipe that, then that's going to limit your ability to recover from ransom very quick, quickly. So the, the companies I've seen that have been able to do that, they do. They just they know that they've got the backups, they know they've got access to them, and so they feel comfortable that, yeah, if they just have to rip down a server and start from scratch, that's okay. And they've got the golden images to be able to just re startup start up very quickly.
0: Okay, and since you also have tons of conversations with high-level executives like CISOs and CIOs and CTOs, what what is like that one piece of advice you would give them just from a security perspective of something that they absolutely have to be doing in 2021?
1: Yep, the backups. <laughs> backups are really, <laughs> okay. it's, it is, it's, it's truly having a strong, practiced, Backup is is critical. Um, don't give up. Don't let the attackers weaponize fear. So that means training people. Sometimes I'll hear executives are like, ugh, you know, people are, they're always going to click. Mm-hmm. Well, no, we can learn. Um, so keep keep teaching us and, and and don't give up on that that security awareness training. And then the last thing is that if you feel that you're having trouble with other parts of your organization getting them to listen or understand the gravity of the situation, run tabletop exercises. You don't have to have a really big fancy week long, um, you know, kind of of uh, people getting involved, but just just have a tabletop exercise in and of itself, sitting everybody down, walking through scenarios. That really helps any part of the organization that may not be quite as attached or integrated with IT. To understand how we're all actually—we're all woven into the fabric of IT, and IT impacts every single part of the company. But sometimes, until you're doing one of those tabletop exercises, and you've got someone in you know, HR, marketing going, "But I can't do," you know, or, or a doctor saying, "But if I can't do," you know, then suddenly it, it makes everybody realize that we're all in this together, and that's why we have to you know, yeah. be, be working together to combat the attacks.
0: Now you you're not just saying backups because you're on data protection gumbo, are you, Diana?
1: I absolutely not. You can find (laughs) anytime I talk about this three, two, one, no, you guys are really the 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 backup strategy is is so much the foundation of a strong and resilient company.
0: Yeah, I thought you were gonna say like your front end system, make sure you have this super (laughs) duper AI ML. detection system you know in front of your network that you know screams and lets lets everyone know know that there's some something happening someone on the network that shouldn't be there but I'm sure you recommend that stuff too but yes also just one more question before we close out there are a, a lot of people in particular you know backup and recovery and storage administrators, uh, architects, engineers, etc they are still looking for work so they they're out of work due to the pandemic and companies having to downsize etc what advice would you give those individuals i guess to up level their skills so they could be more attractive to employers today it's,
1: it's interesting because that it, yeah we are seeing that that resourcing when i was talking about some security people getting reassigned they're actually getting assigned into it operations and and out of of security operations because People are being lost um, uh, for for backup admins for for the the storage admins. You're you're well connected to security in the sense that you've got that backup that backup experience, which is such a critical part of a strong resilient organization. But you could also take that one step further and look at if you're interested in skilling in one of the big growth areas in technology, because to be a backup administrator, you have to understand so much about technology, so don't sell yourself short that you're in one area, right? You can expand this out into these other kind of hot aspects of tech, and you mentioned one of them, AI and ML, so data security, data science. These are very hot areas, and companies are expanding and growing and hiring rapidly, and of course, cybersecurity. You can take a couple of courses at a at a well known institute like a SANS or um, get certified with something like the CompTIA Security Plus to get a feel for if you really like doing that kind of work. And then um, in security, now you've got the the backup experience, but you can also expand that out into doing you know threat hunter, forensic, and other um, IT analyst kind of kind of positions.
0: And you know what I before I let you go, I. Just remember that I didn't mention cloud at all. (laughs) And I want to get your take on the notion that some people in the industry are still saying that cloud is not secure. What do you think about that? Is it more secure now or is it less secure or what, what are your thoughts there? The
1: cloud is as secure as you make it. There's uh, the concept of the shared responsibility model. And in the shared responsibility model, it means that If you're going in for infrastructure as a service, for example, then your responsibility is you decide what operating system you're going to stand up, you have to make sure that that's patched, and all the way up to what kind of identity you're using, if you're using multi-factor authentication. And at the SaaS level, you have a little bit less control. The operating system and patching that is out of your control, but you still have your identity, um, you know, if you do use multi-factor, you know, how how much access you may allow, you know, for the for users, if you're gonna use data classification, that kind of thing. Um, So the cloud gives you this ability across the stack to be able to increase your security and tune it that, so that it's right to you. So there's kind of two myths. One is that the cloud isn't as, as secure, which I used to hear 10 years ago. What I hear now, which actually kind of scares me a little bit, is, well, but I'm using AWS, or I'm using GCP, or I'm using Azure. You know, So that's the Amazon, Google, and Microsoft cloud offerings. So those are big, very well-respected tech companies. I'm totally secure. And it's like, well, but did you did you you know tighten down that S three bucket you know did you, are you encrypting things in storage so it's that that's where that shared responsibility comes into play you can act, I was very resistant to the cloud years ago but you can actually be more secure in the cloud because you get the economies of security scale things like the power backup that's all on the that's all on the cloud provider hardware failure all on the cloud provider and they have rich deep security benches so you do get that great extra security but you have to also keep in mind the shared responsibility model and read whatever that vendor is is has for for, you know that's providing you use what they're giving you to make sure you're at the right level of security so microsoft for example has a um, cis benchmark document that you can use to make sure that you've got your azure set up properly they also have tools like azure security center and secure score to make sure that you're at the right level yeah. for your organization. So it can be more secure, but it's not just a oh, you know, a fire and forget.
0: Well, Diana, I truly enjoyed the conversation and I am walking away a little bit smarter from a security perspective. And I uh, thank you for taking time out of your day. Also, is there any way that... Uh, The Gumbo listeners can reach out to you on social media. Yes,
1: absolutely. Well, thank you so much for for having me on on your show. I I really love the work that you're doing, and I also love the name of your your show. Um, And, uh, yeah, sure, I'm on LinkedIn as Diana Kelly, and Security Curve also is on LinkedIn. So, Please you know, reach out if you have any questions, want any insight or guidance that I'd love to share it.
0: Thank you for listening to Data Protection Gumbo. Please follow us on Twitter at DPG Podcast and join our Backup and Recovery Professionals LinkedIn group. Just search Backup and Recovery Professionals on LinkedIn and you will find the group. And until next time, Gumbo listeners, have a fantastic week.